I'm gonna, as those kids leave, I'm going to have a, a word for the older kids who are still uh, in, in here with us today. And so I want to ask you a question to begin with, and um, it'll kind of maybe orient some of what you're thinking of as we go through the sermon today. So here's the question. What does it feel like when you're about to sin? I mean, in that moment, right when you have been considering whether or not to do something wrong, whether that's disobeying your parents or taking something that doesn't belong to you, peeking at your neighbor's test, cursing, sharing that bit of gossip you heard or, or maybe made up to sound better than others. What does it feel like in that moment? Now, sometimes we do sin, in a sense, before we realize what's happening. Um, it's always easier for us to apologize or repent for that kind of thing when it's like, I didn't realize what I was doing until it was too late. It's kind of a sudden thing that, that uh, we just accidentally walk into maybe or, or uh, maybe carelessly walk into. Um, now, that doesn't mean it's, it's any less wrong, but sometimes it's a little easier to apologize for those things. And the reason for that is, is uh, we, we get to just say it was an accident rather than having to admit that we knew full well what we were doing and that we made an active decision to do it, and we still chose rebellion over righteousness. Now, it'd be nice if that's how all of them were, right? It'd be nice if those were the types of things that we had to repent of, but a lot of times we actually do know what's happening. We actually make that decision. We're actively considering it, feeling it before we sin. Now, I don't think it's probably typical that your elder is asking you to think about what it feels like sinning. Shouldn't we just ignore those urges? Shouldn't we kind of like, uh, I don't really want to think about that stuff. I'm just not going to sin, right? I'm not going to dwell on it too much. But part of coming to Christ in truthfulness is fully grasping and admitting our sinfulness. In this passage we have in chapter 2 of 1 John, just a little few verses before that, we're told to confess our sins to God. And he's faithful and just to forgive those things. So we have to grasp that we're sinners. We have to think about it at some level, right? We don't just, you know, kind of, yes, I'm a sinner, right? You actually have to consider those things. So that's a good reason to think about it. And also, why should we try to hide from God? In Hebrews 4, he tells us we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So kids, God understands your weaknesses, whether, whether of adults or kids, but he understands your weaknesses. So there's no reason to try and hide from him. And thirdly, sometimes when we recognize what it feels like to be tempted, it can actually help us engage our brains, you know, get out of the temptation zone, which a lot of times kind of can float around here or down here, and it can sometimes diffuse the power in the moment. So that's why I'm saying, what does it feel like? Think about that. And I know what that moment feels like. I've experienced it lots of times. I wish I hadn't, but I have. That's a, that's a regular experience. Am I going to sin or am I going to do the right thing? Now, it's a hard decision, and sometimes it can kind of feel like suffering. I don't, I don't mean what comes after it. I don't even mean the consequences. That can be suffering also. But in that moment, making that decision can feel like suffering. So there can be suffering if I choose the right thing. So let's say I choose not to sin. There can be suffering because I wanted that thing that I wanted. I wanted that sin. So I'm having to put it aside. And there's an element of, I don't know, sadness sometimes. There's an element of wishing that I had done the wrong thing, if that makes sense. Maybe some of you can relate to that. But there's obviously suffering if I choose the wrong thing. There's guilt. There's shame. There's fear. Obviously, consequences. Maybe you get a spanking or maybe you get grounded or any of those things, right? There's suffering in that too. 
Now, Jesus also knew what that moment felt like. Think about that. Jesus was tempted and knew what that moment felt like, but he always chose the suffering of righteousness rather than the suffering of guilt and sin. Again, at the, the second half of that verse in Hebrews 4, Jesus, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. So kids, I want you to think about Jesus being tempted, feeling in a sense that feeling that you have when you're thinking about sinning. Jesus felt that, but he chose the right thing. He chose the harder suffering in some ways. Now, part of Jesus' joy on the earth was feeling the, present, the pleasure of his Father's abiding presence. And so even though I talk about that, that element of suffering when you don't get to do that evil thing or you choose not to do that evil thing that you wanted to, Jesus was able to make that right choice because he obeyed God in all things, because he wanted to feel his Father's abiding presence. In John 15, 10, it says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So you can abide in Jesus' presence and his love, just like Jesus did in his Father's. So in today's sermon, and this is what you can be listening for as we go through it today, we're going to talk about two realities today. And adults, this is a good thing for you to keep in mind too. I don't have much of a transition, so here's where you can engage here. Um, the black and white reality, here's, here's one reality, the black and white reality that we must walk in the way that Jesus walked if we to want to be able to say that we know him. So we have to walk as he walked in righteousness and obedience. So that's black and white. But that's paired with a, another reality that we all experience, that we continue to sin every single day of our mortal lives. And we have to keep coming back again and again, and again to the cross for forgiveness and redemption. So those two things are intention here, and we're going to talk about that a lot today. So kids, I'm not going to ask you to draw something for me today. We do that sometimes. I don't know how many of you are actually still doing that very frequently, but we're going to take just a few seconds here. In this moment, sit still and consider how God knows that feeling that you feel, that feeling I asked you to ponder for a minute. He knows that feeling, and he still loves you unconditionally in a way that you can hardly imagine. And he wants you to abide in him and walk with him and to know him. So just sit in silence just for a couple of seconds and think about that. Now, as we get into the passage today, um, it has been uh, a couple of months since we were in 1 John. So Josh Spare graciously offered to share some of his intermittent series that he's been doing with me. So he started all the way back in January, for some of you who might have been able to hear that. Started in 1 John. This is kind of a periodic and inter intermittent series. Go all the way through it, but it might take a little while. And so um, his last sermon on this, to, uh, to finish out chapter one, was about two months ago in July. Now, to remind you of uh, uh, a few things about 1 John, you can see those up there. Um, there are three main purposes of this letter. So um, it's, it's a, a purpose of, of having complete joy because of the believer's fellowship with God and other believers. It's in the, the section that we're looking at today. It's avoiding sin. It comes by admitting it, receiving absolution through Jesus' atonement, and walking with Jesus in obedience. And then toward the end of the book, the end of the letter in 513, the purpose of, the, of his writing is an assurance of eternal life because of the confidence we have in our fellowship with God 
um, and that he hears our prayer. So those are kind of uh, in, in broad terms what this letter is all about. Now, um, the approach is kind of hard in this letter. There's, it's not very long. There's not that much to it, but there are a lot of themes, and John keeps circling back around to them. It's kind of like, it feels sort of like this. <laughs> it's not really a linear progression. He'll progress for a little while and then circle back around and then skip ahead and, and then come back after a while and then go ahead. And So it's, it, there's a lot of back and forth. And there's a lot of complexity there, even when there's not a, a ton of material. This is not Romans we're talking about. Now, the, the kind of uh, pervasive thread through the whole thing is that there are a lot of black and white tests of one's fellowship with God. And so these tests we're going to get into a lot today. Um, these things where how do you know that you are God's? How do you know that you are his child? How do you know that you have salvation? Those sorts of things. Now, today's uh, passage in chapter 2 is just a continuation of the prior stuff in chapter 1. So we're going to get through to kind of the end of that first initial block of themes. So just keep that in mind. It, this, it doesn't stand on its own. It's really part of chapter 1. Um, and then today, the way that we're going to talk about that is we have three sections. So I really should have made these letters larger. I'll remember that for next time. So we've got, we've got three sections. Verses 1 and 2 talk about Jesus being our, chapter, our champion for the little children that we are who can't stop sinning. And in three to six, we'll talk about confronting what seems to be an impossible test, and I think is an impossible test. And in verses seven to eight, there's an old commandment or old commandments that are made new in the light of Jesus. So let's get right into this today. Jesus is the champion for little children who can't stop sinning. Now, this is kind of an interesting nod to uh, something that's not really black and white. A lot of what John talks about in this book is very clear cut, but he's giving a nod to the dim mirror in front of which we stand. Because he's saying, when he, he, he says, uh, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, so it's kind of a funny uh, statement, right? There's no way that we're not going to sin, but we are to not sin. So how, how do we square that? Well, I, I have this uh, passage from 1 Corinthians from the Amplified Bible. It's kind of, uh, I picked this up from my dad uh, uh, because that was the only Bible he's ever had, you know, my entire life, and it's falling apart now, and it was always kind of nice to have the extra words included in there. Um, so let me read it here. For now, in this time of imperfection, so there's not perfect alignment of the things that we're to do, the things we want to do with the things we actually do, we see in a mirror dimly a blurred reflection, a riddle, an enigma. This is confusing. This is hard. But then when the time of perfection comes, we will see reality face-to-face, and now I know in part, just in fragments, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known by God. So these first couple of verses are not an example of these black and white elements of the letter. There's lots of those, but not this one in particular. It's, it's not quite a sarcastic statement. It's not quite ironic, but that's kind of what it's getting at. It's getting at this idea that we're called to do something that we're not ever going to achieve, and yet that doesn't change the call. We're still called to not sin. John still wants his readers not to sin, and he's going to put some tools and some information in their hands, but they're still going to continue sinning. Now, how do we deal with that? Now, in the next, uh, uh, the next half of that, that uh, first verse, it talks about Jesus. Jesus is for us. He's our advocate, and uh, he gave himself for us. That's what propitiation is referring to, an atoning sacrifice or a sin offering for us. So Jesus steps into a place where we're never going to meet that righteous requirement of the law. We're never going to meet God's standard for us, and he meets it for us because he is for us. 
So he fulfills that righteous requirement, that's justification, and then he turns aside God's righteous wrath. And I say righteous wrath because in verse 5 of chapter 1, there's a, 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 a section that says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so God is righteous. There's no way for his light, his goodness, his perfection to exist with the darkness of our sin. And so his wrath at our sin, uh, his dissatisfaction with it is righteous. Um, But Jesus turns that aside. And in doing that, he restores us to a right relationship with God. That right relationship is characterized by fellowship, by peace, by thriving in this life even. Obviously thriving in an eternal context, but even thriving in this life. And that's what Jesus' atoning sacrifice on our behalf does. And that really, that, that, that very small half a verse, if any, uh, it says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, that's like the gospel in a little nutshell, especially if you apply that, if we confess our sins part of it from the previous chapter. So Jesus is for us. He's our advocate. Jesus uh, is our propitiation. He's the one who turns aside God's wrath and saves us. And when we confess that, we are given his righteousness, and God's wrath is, is, uh, is turned away from us. Um, so uh, the, the last piece of these first verses I want to note um, is this idea of the whole world. It says in verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So recognize that this is not some kind of universalist, impersonal sa- uh, salvation. So this is not Jesus dying and then everyone is just saved. There's no relationship there. There's, there's, I, I, would, I would contend there's not much of a statement of love there because it just happens. God doesn't have to know us to grant that type of salvation, and that's not what a Christian salvation is. But instead, um, it, it speaks to the whole world as kind of a contrast between just Jew and Gentile. It speaks to um, God's love for those who are in the tent and also those who are outside the tent, right? The Abraham's tent, so to speak. And it's kind of speaking of it like we see in John 3.16 in his gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever in the world believes in him will not die but have eternal life. And so that's the type of whole world we're talking about, that he died for everyone, whether Jew, whether Gentile, no matter your situation, he is the salvation that you can find. Now, before we finish these first two verses, let's look back up at one aspect of it we probably just passed over quickly. When John says, my little children... So he's, he's probably talking about, you know, he's a father, right, spiritually. He's older. This was written later in his life, around the same time as the book of Revelation. So he can rightly say little children in both the spiritual and probably the, uh, the physical sense. But I think it's calling us to consider what a child is like. And this is really going to play into what it means later in, uh, in our discussion today, what it means to abide in Christ, So let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 18 to learn a little bit about what children are like. It says, And calling to him a child, this is talking about Jesus, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that passage is repeated in a couple of the other Gospels, too, um, focusing on, uh, on humility, focusing on um, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Interestingly, the ESV note for that 
helps us understand a little better what, a, what the humility of a child actually is. The quote says, the humility of a child consists of childlike trust, vulnerability, and the inability to adv- advance his or her own cause apart from the help, direction, and resources of a parent. So all of those things, the, those three elements there, right? Uh, trust, vulnerability, and kind of a helplessness. Those wrap up in children uh, in, in, in our experience, right? Children in life continually seeking to come back into fellowship with their parents or their caregivers. I might say parents through the, the course of this thing, by the way, but that's not to ignore that grandparents, that others um, are, are caring for kids. I think it's a, a similar concept. But um, coming back and seeking that fellowship is what kids do, for better or worse, right? Um, that may, in their situation, be a good thing or not a good thing, but it's an aspect of childlikeness that I think we should pay attention to in this spiritual context. Um, in a safe and a secure home, it actually works. The children pursue fellowship, re- uh, restoration of fellowship with their parents, and those parents respond, and they can come back into relationship with them and, uh, and kind of all grow together. Um, but in unsafe or unreliable homes... Um, eventually there are self-defense mechanisms that kick in and the fellowship instinct itself is wrecked. Whether that means that the approach to seeking fellowship is wrecked or they just stop seeking it, right? And that has consequences later in life. So when Jesus calls us to childlikeness, I think we need to recognize that there is an element of this fellowship seeking that we're talking about here. And so he, uh, this is a big part of what we're being called to. Um, I, I, I will see this as we continue to go through, um, but I do want to recognize that this reality and the, the, the reality of being a child and seeking fellowship and maybe not finding it is something that may strike a painful note in some of your hearts. And I don't want to ignore this, right? It's easy to talk about God being a father and that to sound like a good thing, and that may not sound like a good thing to all of you. Um, because of things you've experienced in your life, you may have trouble trusting others, You may have trouble acknowledging your painful or your strong emotions. You may have trouble letting your walls down in relationships, engaging at church, or even continuing to hope. So there's a risk in being like a child, right? There's a risk of getting rejected. There's a risk of being hurt, and we carry that with us through our lives. But if that's the situation you're in today, I want to invite you into a cautious curiosity about how Jesus is for you. We want to talk about that today, and we will. Jesus is for you. He's your advocate. He loves you. He wants you to abide in him. So that may not be something that uh, sounds appealing, but I just encourage you to have a cautious curiosity about it this morning. And I want you to consider today, all of us, God's call into an abiding relationship, which really means fellowship. So there's a lot of nuance in these first couple of verses of this chapter, but they immediately give way in the next few verses to a set of absolute statements that would seem to leave us unable to ever truthfully say that we know God. So I really had a a hard time with this section of it. The beginning, acknowledging that we're not really able to meet God's standard, and then the next few verses, making it sound like if we don't, we're liars. So I want to talk about that uh, today. Um, we're going to talk about it in the context of confronting an impossible test. So this test, uh, uh, just one of many that John lays out. Um, so in one way, verses 3 to 6 are so cut and dried, it's hard to say anything about it. It's hard to know. It, just, it basically says, 
Um, if we know him, we keep his commands, we obey. And if you don't uh, obey, then you can't say you know him. And if you keep his word, then God's love is perfected. Um, but if you're not walking with Christ, then there's, there's this like sense of how could you even call yourself a Christian? And so this is challenging. Um, you know, experientially, if that was the final word, if, if that test, if that black and white cut and dried aspect of it was the last word, then I think that this passage wouldn't do anything but cause us to either despair or become legalists, right? Either we have to be perfect or how are we ever going to know God? Um, and it's certainly uh, the kind of reaction it causes in me. How could I, how could I like embrace this passage even though I know I'm never going to meet that standard. So I'd like us to look in Romans in chapter 7 and 8 to find some comfort and understand this slightly better. We're going to go through uh, just three sections of, uh, of the begin- uh, end of chapter 7 and beginning of 8. So in this first one, this is Paul speaking. He said, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So don't read this and think that this is Paul talking about how he was, and now he doesn't have any trouble with this. That's not the way this sounds, right? He is actively evangelizing the Gentile world. He is actively pushing the boundaries of Christ's kingdom out into the surrounding areas. He's writing letters to the churches. He's encouraging. He's exhorting. He's calling uh, uh, the church to establish the foundations that it will need to continue to exist into the future. And yet, he is calling himself a wretched man. And he cannot do the things that he wants to do. But at the same time, he's not disqualifying himself as a Christian. And why should we? If we struggle with sin, why is that an indication that we are not in God's family? I think we'll see some some clarity as we continue to go forward. So in the next few verses, um, now starting in chapter 8, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So that no condemnation thing, that's a once and for all event. So when you are in Christ, when you confess your sins and you experience God's faithfulness and his justice to forgive your sins... That, con- that no condemnation, that, don't, that happens once, and it's good for all time. Now, the prior law, the law, the, the, uh, mo- the Mosaic law, um, was shown because of our flesh's weakness that it, was, it couldn't ever free us from sin. So our flesh's weakness is really our nature when we're apart from Christ. And so that law, that law was showing that we could never be freed from sin by following the law. And yet, we are freed from sin as we abide in Christ, because Christ changes our nature. And that's the promise here in Christ, is that we are uh, no longer under the law. We're no longer subject to this weak flesh, even though we still have our weak flesh. So there's a lot of tension in these things, and yet we can take hope in the fact that we are not condemned, and and, uh, Christ will not abandon us. 
Now in verse 5, we'll finish up this passage and say, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So this starts to give us a sense of what John is talking about in verse 6 when he's saying walking in the way that Jesus walked. Walking and abiding with Christ involves an intentionality and an, an orientation toward the Spirit. We trust God to empower us to resist and defeat sin in our daily habits. Yet, until we are glorified, until we are freed completely from our flesh, we will sin. But we orient our minds toward Christ, toward the Spirit. So how did Jesus walk? And how are we supposed to walk that way too? Well, clearly he obeyed the Father, so that's an easy answer. He submitted to the Father unto death, and yet he pointed further than the law, just obeying, right? And you can see this in his teachings. One example that shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the rich young man, the rich young man who comes to Jesus and can, you know, maybe uh, with some pride, but probably not illegitimately, say that he has followed the law. And yet Jesus points to something else that goes beyond that, following Jesus, walking with him, right? So that's something that just goes beyond a strict legal adherence. Another example of this is the tax collector in the temple in Luke 18, where you have the example of a Pharisee who uh, his whole existence, his whole livelihood was following the, the law, and yet the one that Jesus said was, uh, was, was justified, was forgiven, was the tax collector in the temple who was beating his breast and telling God what a sinner he was, which doesn't mean he used to be a sinner and now he doesn't sin anymore. He probably kept on sinning. And yet he was the one who was justified. So claiming to be perfect does not mean you know God. Even getting close, if any of us could actually get close, also does not mean you know God. There's something deeper and fuller going on here than just legal observance. So let's look at uh, in John 15. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And again, Jesus talks about seeking our mutual joy, his joy and our joy. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus wants joy for us and he also wants to rejoice in us. And the way this happens is it, it, it takes place in an abiding and a relational fellowship with him. Just like he abides and has a relationship with the Father, we abide with Jesus and have a relationship with him. And that's where the joy that we share with God, with our Savior, that's where that joy comes from. So we see here a clear and unmistakable call for Christians to live righteously. There's no getting around that in this passage in 1 John. There's, and, and please don't hear me that I'm saying obedience is not really that important. It is important, but that call in the context overall in the New Testament points to Christ's righteousness and not our own, our own adherence to the law. As, and it points to the necessity of walking in an honest and vital relationship with Jesus, and that's how we please God. So honest, meaning we admit that we're sinners and we continue to sin in this life. And vital, meaning we continue to come back. Vital, living, approaching Jesus as many times as it takes, just like a child approaching a parent. We come back, we seek that fellowship over and over again. Now, the last two verses in this passage, um, 
I think I did that a little bit fast. The last two verses in this passage um, connect the old to the new, and they also transition into the next section in First, First John 2. So in 7 and 8, old commandments being made new in Jesus' light. So um, if you're looking in the ESV, the formatting there with the section header makes it seem like these verses are just referring to brotherly love. It's just referring to living with our, our brothers and not necessarily about the prior sections that we've been talking about, walking with Jesus. But other translations divide it totally differently. And I think there's an argument to be made that that, uh, that old commandment, new commandment, uh, aspect of it is is referring to both. It's referring backwards, and it's also referring forwards, kind of in the general sense, and then forwards into specific examples that will be given. Um, so I don't want to miss those dual connections. Abiding in and walking with God were always the end goal. They were always the goal of God coming and revealing himself to his people. Now, the old commandments emphasized obedience. They were the law, right? You do it, or you're guilty. That's how it works. Now, there were, there's the sacrificial system so that people weren't totally without hope, but no matter what, that old system of laws emphasized obedience. And the new commands don't discount obedience, but they emphasize relationship and they emphasize love. And that's where we start getting pulled into the next sections that we'll hear about brotherly love and how key that is, how, how important of a test that is of whether we are in Christ. So both elements there are necessary, but things are new now because something new has happened and something new is happening. And imagine the way that it says here uh, in verse 8, it says, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. What? That's amazing that the new commandment is true in Jesus and also in us. What a privilege that uh, John here frames newness in connection to both Jesus, our Savior, and us sinners. Like, what a bridge from God to us. That's an amazing thing to me to see. Now, speaking of the darkness passing away, there are two verses here from John that I want to uh, highlight. In chapter 8, it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus coming, bringing himself as the light into this world, that's new. That's a new thing, and that involves a newness of walking with God. And then in chapter uh, 1, looking back just a little bit in First John, it says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So Jesus' light is shining, both in the world and in his children, and even though we do not yet see all that darkness gone in the world or in ourselves, we can walk in his light today when we abide in Jesus Christ. Now, in conclusion, I think of this as a father. Uh, I've already talked about that a little bit today earlier. Um, but as a father, I am for my children, and I want them to have joy uprightness, and I want them to have strong confidence in their lives, just like these, these desires, the, these purposes that John has in this letter. Now, part of this, as imperfectly as I do it, is that I insist that they stop doing wrong. I insist that they stop sinning. They stop doing all the things that they do. Umbria must, she's one and a half, must stop smacking me in the face just because she thinks it's funny. That's kind of a new game for her. Oswin must stop knocking his sister over. He's three and a half, just because he's bigger. He loves doing that. Oswin must stop hiding 
when he's sneaking sucks on his sister's pacifier just because he misses the comfort of his own. He's got to stop those things. But when I correct them, when there is sadness many times, when there's uh, being distraught and all those things that they experience, they return to me for fellowship. They cling to me for comfort. And when they share their pain and their anger with me for the thousandth time, do I reject them? No. They keep doing it. And yet I keep inviting them to me as imperfectly as I do it. That's what I want to do because I want relationship and fellowship with my children. Now, when you, Christians, seek satisfaction in the world's pleasure, you're smacking God in the face. When you slander and you denigrate your brother, sister, or neighbor, you are pushing God to the floor. When you conceal your addictions and lie to yourself and your family, you are rejecting the fellowship of intimacy with God himself. Yet into this brokenness of our sins, the sins that all of us experience, the sins we keep coming back to, Jesus cries out to us, come to me, abide in my love, walk in my love. And if you trust in him for your salvation today, Jesus has already paid the price of every sin in your life. Everyone is covered. Everyone is forgiven. He calls you to obey his commands. And when he calls, I firmly believe he equips. He does not call us to failure. And that's because of the power of the Holy Spirit. He is completely able to complete that work that he has begun in us. But the standard of walking with Jesus is not personal legal perfection, but rather abiding in him and walking with him just in, uh, as a child in humility. And what does that look like? Walking with a child's humility is trust, it's vulnerability, and it's total dependency on God. All of those are hard and they're painful, and they are sometimes disappointing for a time, even as we, we uh, orient ourselves toward God in those ways. It can be disappointing for a time. But Jesus promises to step into that suffering and walk in it with us. He calls to us, and now, little children, abide in me, so that when I appear, you may have confidence and not shrink from me at my coming. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your great and unimaginable love for us. Our Father, the one that calls us again and again and forgives us again and again and embraces us again and again, let us abide in you. Let us walk trusting you, knowing that it can hurt, knowing that it can not make sense sometimes, many times, God. And yet let us trust that you are for us, that you not only have paid the price for all of our sins and indeed the sins of the whole world, but God, that you, uh, that, that you want uh, joy for us and you want to have joy in us as well. So we pray that you would Lift us up our hearts in that truth today. Help us to have hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen.